Hello, and welcome back to the Driven Minds podcast, brought to you by Type 7. I'm Gigi, your host and partner in shame-free living. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes who regale us with stories as to how they turn their mental struggles into mental strengths. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed so far. Last week, we were the number one mental health podcast in Bermuda. And to that, I say, chingas, which should mean something to Bermudians. If you haven't subscribed yet, I know you'll love the guests we have coming up. Speaking of, today's guest is the one and only tour de force Elaine Welteroff. You might know her as the host of the CBS morning show, The Talk, a judge on Project Runway, or from her New York Times best-selling memoir, More Than Enough. Elaine's career began when she moved from Northern California to New York City after college to pursue an internship at Ebony Magazine. She then landed at Glamour Magazine, which is part of Condé Nast, the acclaimed publishing giant that owns magazines like Vogue, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. From Glamour, she moved on to Teen Vogue, where she was the first black beauty director in Condé Nast's 112-year history, and then became their youngest editor-in-chief, transforming Teen Vogue from an outdated teen publication to a heralded platform for diverse voices. So that's when I first met Elaine, around seven years ago when I was working in the features department at Vogue. I was immediately struck by Elaine's enthusiasm and her realness. Anytime we spoke, she made me feel like I was the only person in the room. When we spoke this time, Elaine had recently moved from New York to Los Angeles, meaning she was living amongst piles of boxes. And you can hear her voice echo throughout her empty house as her newlywed husband, Jonathan, shuffled around in the background, making tea and telling her that her headphones were not plugged in. So here it is, my conversation with Elaine Welteroth. joy. So I definitely still feel very like connected to Brooklyn. I still feel like I brought Brooklyn with me. Um, It'll never leave me, but it definitely felt like it was, it was time for the next chapter for sure. I totally get that. I actually live between New York and Berlin now. I'm mostly in Berlin. What's that been like? It's been great. I first went to Berlin in 2017 and instantly fell in love with it. It's the most judgment-free city. I feel I never have to explain myself and you're not defined by your job or what you do. So for me, it was honestly everything New York was not. But I read your book at the start of the pandemic around the time I was casting for this podcast and also going through a really difficult breakup and it carried me through that period. I've watched so many of your live interviews in preparation for this conversation, and you've interviewed everyone from Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton. You've been on Trevor Noah and The View, and you, Elaine, are as cool as a cucumber, and I do not understand. So please spill your bag of tricks. I mean, do you get nervous? Do you mentally prepare? What is this process? Oh my gosh, you are so kind. And no, I ask Jonathan, he sees the real behind the scenes. I freak out way more than you would ever imagine. I mean, I, that Barack Obama interview, like I was having, I I was like, I might need my asthma inhaler. Like I was fully (laughs) hot flashes. I was just, I mean, yeah, no, I get nervous 
all the time. I think I would like just lose my words. I, I just, nothing would come out. I spiraled so hard before and after that. And to this day, I'm like, oh, why was my question so long? Why? I'm the most self-critical person ever. I was literally, I actually had to talk. I had a therapist conversation right after that. And I was, and I made her watch it. And we had a whole conversation because I was like freaking out. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was cringy. I didn't want to post it. Like I was freaking out about that. And what you didn't see is this little clip where like, I actually had to like calm down. I was like, I was like, Okay, I'm getting a little nervous. And he was like, take a breather. Take a breather. We got time. And I had to like collect myself and then ask the question. So just know, even that was a highlight reel, okay? There was there was deleted scenes from there. Oh my God, I so get the cringy though. I feel that every single time I hear my voice on the podcast and like I'm just trying to like separate myself from this, from this thing, you yes. know, that I've created because – because when I think of it like that, like as an objective third-party observer, I'm like, huh, like I would listen to this. But totally. without that, I'm like, oh God, just just stop speaking, you know? Totally, like- totally. And you feel like that with anything that you create that comes from, you know, a vulnerable place. Any, anything that's of value that you will create will come from that vulnerable place inside, which will make you question if anyone cares if mm-hmm. anyone's going to read the thing or listen to the thing or like it, it, it's like if you aren't feeling that, you should be worried about what it is you're putting out into the world. You know what I mean? Like my mom always oh, says, man. what comes from the heart touches the heart. And so in order to do meaningful work, you have to dig in and put your heart out there and it's going to be cringy and it's going to, you're going to spiral and you're probably going to need to talk to a therapist about it. But like, it's so worth it because it's the things that are the most vulnerable that you put out there that people connect to uh, the most. So it's a good sign, G, that you feel like that. And, and you are a great interviewer. So I'm just really happy for you that you put yourself out there and you're doing this. Oh, that means the world coming from you. Seriously. I mean it. The best thing you could do uh, to, to deal with those nerves is just prepare, prepare, prepare as much as you possibly can, because then you just feel like I got this. You you're, you just start to give that I got this energy, which helps carry you through and um, it allows you to be more free and flexible in the moment because you're mm-hmm. sort of anchored by the research you've done, the time you've put in, and now you can just kind of run off of muscle memory. And that's the best feeling, you know, when you can be free in conversation with someone and um, sort of guide it gently without without f- being too present or being too um, rigid. Um, you know, I think that's that's sort of the spirit you want to have when you're when you're interviewing people. But it, the best interviews really are when you get into that flow zone and when you're mm-hmm. not really in control anymore. Um, and it's really just your energy that's guiding it by being open and making and opening them up as well. So that's the best advice I can give you. But I'll tell you, it's so funny. Last week, I just interviewed um, Maggie Rogers, who, by the way, is my personal icon. And no one would probably ever think that, like, she's the person of all people. Like, she's the person that, like, I cried before I interviewed her. I've never, ever, 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 ever in my life done that. But her music touches my soul on such a level. And it was, like, the 
music I turned to while I was writing my book and putting my book out into the world. And so I have such a personal connection to it. And so like the idea of meeting with her and I got to see her perform live and I haven't been around live music all year. So it was just very, very like emotional. And so I I teared up and I was like, somebody get me tissue. And then, and then I did the interview and Jonathan was with me. And at the end, he was like, oh my gosh, you fangirled like a little bit too hard. He's like, you embarrassed me. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. I was able to keep my shit together for Obama. Okay. I can lose it. I can lose it, lose it a little with, with Maggie Rogers. Please just give me this. Give me this moment. Well, that actually makes me feel a lot better. I feel I feel very seen by your tears right now, I have to say. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the whole the whole point of this podcast is to talk about the struggles behind the success. And there's a quote I love from you about the issue with just focusing on someone's career highlight reel. Mm. And you stress how important it is that we spend time talking about the how and the why behind the what we see. Mm. And I'm curious what the turning point was for you when you realized the importance of understanding someone in their entirety and like their story as a whole. Oh my God, always. I've always, always, always been that person who asks, how are you really? And like really wants to sit there and listen to your whole life story and every nook and cranny of what's in your mind and on your heart. Like I, I have always been really curious about how people are really doing and what's Mm -hmm. really good and having real talk and um, going beyond the facade. And so similarly, when people have, you know, ever, ever asked me, especially growing up when I was still so like young and naive and pure and thought people really cared (laughs) when they asked me, how are you? I'd like, you know, naively like tell them and then realize painfully they don't even care. No one cares. And no one, no one, they just want you to be like, I'm good and move on. But, um, I think that's, what's always made me feel like a little bit of an alien, frankly, you know, is just this, this deep craving, to know more and to connect more deeply with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really cool to have a job that allows me to ask those kind of deeper questions and um, get into what's real. So when I sort of found myself in a position where people knew things about me that were put out there, you know, the highlight reel stuff, it felt, Mm -hmm. you know, deeply conflicting because I felt like I was being almost tokenized. Um, and, and I never want to be put on a pedestal period, but certainly, you know, if, uh, if I'm going to be like held up as some role model, I would, I would, I, I feel there's a real responsibility to share more of the real, um, and more of the, you know, the why and the how behind the what, as you said. I actually do want to talk about Jonathan because, You know, we see your relationship with him on Instagram, and while it's beautiful and wonderful, it was a journey to get to him. And Mm -hmm. you you detail emotional abuse from partners before him, and I so relate to this because my first boyfriend was so emotionally abusive, and when I'd say I wanted to break up with him, he'd say things like, no one else would ever love me, and like all this crazy shit. And I stayed until there was a family intervention. And there is so much gaslighting involved with emotional abuse. And you talk about it so accessibly in your book. 
Because sometimes like you don't know how deep you're in or how wrong it is. And looking back on what you went through, what do you think the first step would be for someone to extricate themselves from this kind of relationship if they find themselves in one? Mm, that's such a good question. And, I, you know, I even that was the, one of the hardest parts of the book to write about. Um, but also the parts of the book that felt the hardest to write felt the most necessary um, because there's often a stigma or a shame associated with the things that are hard to talk about. But once we break that seal, I feel like we, we create space and we give permission to other people to tell their truth too. You know, um, I can sort of only speak to what I've experienced and how I um, managed to break that cycle. And for me, it was, it had to be cold Turkey. Like I, I held on, way too long to these relationships that weren't good for me. And uh, it, it took kind of my mom <laughs> intervening where she just said to me, this is not love. And this is not, like, she, she said to me, it was so, it was so, <laughs> it was like an order, but it was actually the one that I, I, I actually needed at the moment. She said, you will never call him again. Do mm-hmm. you hear me? Never. Because that is not love. And if you find yourself in need of love, I don't care if it's 2 a.m. in the morning, Elaine, you call me. You call your brother. You call your friend. You will not call that man again because you will not go back to the person that hurt you with hopes of them healing you. Mm -hmm. And that was big for me because I recognized I was in this cycle with this person who had hurt me so badly that I felt like I could only get through it with this person. Like I needed this person to heal the hurt they caused. And, And I felt like I had to protect his image um, and sort of the former sanctity of our relationship such that I would, I kept, I kept it all as a secret and I didn't feel like I could bring anyone else in to help. But what I, when I, when my mom said that to me, I realized like, this is not going to get better with, with him. Like this will only get better when I cut him off and allow in actual healing energy into my life. And, um, and then, after three years together, a ring on my finger, all the promises, we never spoke again. Wow. We never spoke again. He never texted me. I never texted him. He never emailed me. I never emailed him. I've never seen him since. Um, and just like that, I, I was able to take control over my my life again and my heart. And um, I became a lot pickier about who I was going to give my heart to. And um, that was sort of the beginning of a, of a healing process. But it's interesting that you said you remember, you know, you used your toxic relationship as a milestone for you. And I do as well. Like for real, that feels like, like BCAD. Like it was like me before that breakup and me after that breakup are two different women. 
Mm-hmm. I, and that woman is almost unrecognizable to me. I have so much compassion for her. I hold her sometimes. I think about her sometimes, but she is not the woman that I am today. Mm-hmm. And I really do honor that relationship for having, you know, forging by fire the woman I am today. And um, li- literally all of my passwords and everything. It's so strange. I changed all my passwords at that point to to mark this new this new day, like this new person, this new moment. And I've never I've never looked back. I also see jobs as a before and after. Mm-hmm. And I'm so curious because there was a transformation that you went through as well at at Condé Nast. And you've said that you've had to work extra hard to be extra and be extra good in order to be recognized in a predominantly white publishing space. But there is this pressure to always work as hard like grind yourself to the bone, to the dust and always be busy. And you were so busy as editor in chief that you had no time to eat. You had no time to sleep and you had a physical reaction to the anxiety and stress to the point that you had to go to a doctor and you had, you had a breakdown. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you just summarized it so perfectly. Um, my mom always says, like, if you want to go where you've never been, you have to stop doing what you've been doing. Like, you have to switch. You have to ch- like mm-hmm. when you when you elevate. There's a certain way that you have to like also elevate your your the way you th- talk to yourself, the way you you know your your self talk, the way you think, the way that you treat yourself, the way you move. And I think I'm still three years out or whatever it's been. Let's see, 2020, almost three years out. I'm still re training myself to be kinder to myself, to take a break, to stand up, to walk, to get food, to go on a walk or to take a deep breath or to make a meal for myself, um, to delegate and trust that somebody else is going to carry it out for you to, to know that like people aren't waiting for you to fail or, you know, people aren't waiting to like you for you to leave the room to like stab you in the back. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to say trauma because there's real trauma in this world that, that, that I think doesn't deserve to be in the same conversation as this, but there is some sort of, emotional you know, trauma. yeah, there, there's some, there's some stuff that comes along with working in a, in a, an environment that is challenging on your psyche and, and being in that environment for over a decade and, you know, you have to become almost like an Olympic athlete to like endure it and to succeed in that, in that environment. And so when you leave it, there's a little bit of like Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. Is that the right term? I think so. I get it. Like you keep carrying out the habits that you formed at Condé Nast in your personal life sometimes or whatever your, your corporate work environment was, you know, and then you bring them home and you're like, oh, wait, I am an adult and I don't, I do don't work there and I don't have to be like this anymore, you know? Right. Like I am my own boss. I have no one to blame but me. Uh, and so I, I need to be a better manager of myself and I'm still working through that. And that's the kind of thing that like you'll never see that on Instagram. You'll never see that on, you know, in a headline because there's just not space for that. So I love that you have this podcast because I if, with the and that you come into it with the intention of talking about 
the stuff that isn't out there on the highlight reels, you know? And this is certainly that for me. It's like, yeah, I had that breakdown. I had that, like that moment of realizing I can't, I can't continue on like this. And there was a lot that I changed about my life um, and my work since then. And I'm so like infinitely in a better, just in an infinitely healthier place as a result of it. But there are these bad working habits that, um, have stayed with me. And like, I, I, I could be so much better in terms of wellness. And that's actually what the next two weeks are, are for me is just focusing on how to reset some of these bad habits and go into the new year, um, you know, prioritizing small things like making lunch, actually making a couple meals throughout the week for dinner, um, turning off at a certain time, like Mm -hmm. all of those, all of those basics, like I still don't have them down G. Yeah. I mean, girl, I don't either. I, I, I think the social media doom scrolling is, you know, when you're just go from story to story and you're just like, okay, one more, one more. And then all of a sudden you wasted an hour of your time and you feel like your heart sinks. Like it's not a good feeling, you know? Do you set parameters around your relationship with social media? I do a timer, but I mean, sometimes I just kind of press ignore and I keep going. But the days, I'm curious what where you are with this, because the days that I really don't check it, whether it's because I'm on a hike or, you know, I'm I'm with a partner or with a group of friends, those are the days without fail that I'm the happiest. Ah. Uh. That's a sign. That's a sign, my friend. You have to follow the signs. They're all there for us, aren't they? You know what my issue with social media is all these micro connections. Mm. And and now that's all we have to hold on to because of this pandemic. I mean, we're so screen orientated by, by force. It's so true. What I think has been great about this year is that it's, it's been a real filter for what's important and who I want to spend real time with. And, um, sis, the list is short, (laughs) like the list of people that I need in my real life is actually really, really short. And like, I'm happier, I'm happier not having to go to these social events and (sighs) exert all that energy and just leak all my good energy when I can just save it for those who I really want to spend that time with and that energy on. And so I felt honestly better, cleaner, happier in my own little bubble. And, you know, you're right. The only time that you ever feel affected by people outside of your bubble is when you invite them in by scrolling mm-hmm. for when you don't need to be, you don't even need to be. Do- so, so my thing is I love to just figure out what I want to say, like, as a writer, I feel like Instagram has, has been a really, um, important tool during this time to like tap in and like, what is it that I feel it, I, I need or want to say, like, I, I never want to just feel like I'm adding to the noise, um, you know, or, you know, just adding cliche generic stuff to, to this moment. I, so it's like, what do I really want to say? Checking in with myself and then, putting it out there and then turning it off. Like I really do try to just like put it out there, shut it off, move on to my, the rest of my to-do list. And then as a reward at some point in the day, like maybe I'll look on it and I'll like things and I'll try to, I, but I really do try to be, try emphasis on try mm-hmm. to be more mindful of 
how much time I'm spending on there and like how much space I'm giving it in my life. Cause if you magnify the wrong things, um, you, you could be missing out on the richness of your real life. So I just try to keep and keep it, keep that in mind and try to magnify the things that actually matter. Well, I think why it's getting harder to separate ourselves from social media is because we're at home with all of this time all of a sudden. Our days are less busy and we're never in transit unless you're an essential worker. Mm -hmm. So we're left with this excess of time and we don't know how to use it because we've never had it. And I think there are two types of people. There are people who overwork and have no boundaries. <laughs> That's me. Ooh, Jesus, I feel red. <laughs> so I'm the other type. I'm the person who spends all day going back and forth to the fridge as if new snacks will magically appear somehow. And then there will be a deadline or a time crunch, and I will spend 24 hours frantically working. So that should give you an idea as to where I'm at. What does your freelance routine look like, especially when you were writing your book? Because the idea that you had the discipline during non-COVID times to sit and type, <laughs> please explain yourself. Well, you know, what's funny is maybe that's just, I I'm that kind of loser. Like I really, for me, COVID <laughs> is working out really well for my personality type because I, I, like this is not unfamiliar to me. Like sitting at home like in your pajamas in front of your laptop, like no connection with the outside world, not going anywhere. Like that's my steez. Like that's like, that's like peak. That's like peak me. That's, that's, that is what it took to, to pump out a book in like in that amount of time. And it's, I don't know if it's healthy or not healthy, but it really, it, it suited me because I don't know, as a writer, you, it, it, you kind of have to be able to be quiet and inward and reflective and you kind of need to shut out the distractions in order to get your work done. And like, so yeah, I feel like I lived through the quarantine, uh, like a, a personal quarantine by through writing my book. So when this happened, it was sort of, it wasn't unfamiliar to me, this way of life. You know, the only thing that's different is obviously I can't be on multiple planes every week, um, right. which I was doing prior. And I'm like, I don't miss that. I don't mm -hmm. miss that. I'm enjoying being grounded. Um, and again, like I can be a social butterfly, but like, I don't miss being out there and having to have these like really surface superficial conversations with like 20 people in like 45 minutes and then sitting there and having a dinner where like, I actually just want to be home and in my pajamas on my couch, but I'm here in this like uncomfortable outfit talking, making small talk, which I hate with somebody I barely know who would, it's just like all that stuff went away and, and allowed more space again for what really matters. Now, what I, what I've realized I'm like almost frustrated with myself about is that like, I still haven't mastered the 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 basics of like like now I have I, I am in control of my time I am in control of my schedule in every way like I've built my own business I am in charge of the projects I say yes to or no to I work from home like so does everyone else and and like yet and still like so now who can I blame for not eating lunch do you know what I mean who can I blame for not remembering to stand up to stretch and, and like when I'm super hangry by like whatever time o'clock and I'm just like, so I'm, my back hurts. I'm like annoyed with everything. And then I'm like, 
it's because I'm hangry and it's my fault because I have a full kitchen right there. Girl, stand up and go get it. And I know this sounds insane. Like there are so many people listening. Probably 99% of the people listening are like rolling their eyes so hard right now. Like who is this, this person? Like I, I don't relate at all. But there's a one per, there's at least one percent out there who are like, I feel you. It there's a there is a mode that you go into where self-care just completely falls by the wayside. Like, you know, and you and I feel like I need I'm learning to parent myself, like drink water, go to bed, wake mm-hmm. up early, work out, like make breakfast, like all the basic things that I've struggled with my whole career are still big challenges for me in this quarantine. I think that's been, that's been like almost depressing. You know, I'm like, I thought I outgrew so much of these bad habits and turns out I haven't when the rest of the world and all the, when all of the other, all of the reasons I could blame have gone away, like all the planes and the, and the events and the, this and the, that it's like, those things have all gone away. And yet, and still, I still can't figure out how to like, do the most basic things for myself. And, and so that's what I'm working on. Gee, that's, 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 and boundaries too. Like I think boundaries have come up for a lot of people because there is no commute to your point. Like there's no official start and official end to your day. You are just always on. And Mm -hmm. so you have to kind of erect those boundaries and create those joy buckets is what I like to call it because my friend, my, the lovely Priya Parker, um, who's my, my friend and fellow author. She wrote a book called The Art of Gathering. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing my book, she told me this really helpful kind of tactic, which is to create joy buckets where you literally schedule time on your calendar for joy. And you don't pre, pre-plan what that joy is going to look like because you don't know what it's going to feel like in that moment. So you allow yourself to just say like at Monday at from six to eight, I'm going to, I'm doing joy and nothing that doesn't feel like joy. So, so at six, you look and you're like, what does joy feel like right now? (sighs) It feels like taking a shower or, you know, like it feels like going for a walk. It feels like eating pizza, like whatever that is. And I think that got me through writing my book that got me through. And I've been trying to recommit to that during the quarantine. What was your last joy bucket? Uh, It's been a while, but, um, Oof, Elaine, Elaine. I know. Wait, hold on. No, 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 no. No, but I have so... No, 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 I, I do have a lot of joy. I just haven't been like committed to doing it on my calendar. So let me think mm-hmm. for one second. Um, um, this is going to make me sound like such a dork, but I, I love dancing around my freaking house. I love just like putting on music I've and dancing <laughs> in my socks and like sliding around. I really feel that deep in my soul, I was supposed to be a ballerina and... <laughs> And my mom took me out of ballet classes too early. Um, but it just, I love a freestyle ballet jazz situation in my living room. It, that brings me joy. And I, and I honestly, I, I, dorkily enough, I do that quite often. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But you know what? My question is for you is why do you think self-care is so hard for you to cultivate? Girl, it's the million dollar question. I wish I knew the answer to that. We get to talk to my therapist about it. Um, but the good news is I have a therapist now. Um, but I don't I don't work with a traditional therapist. Um I have uh a woman that I speak to who's actually a shaman. 
And she uses a lot of Native American rituals and um, her practice is very spiritual. So um, some, you know, some of what she brings to the table is very intuitive and it's, it's, it's less like, um, what's the word, you know, clinical is the word. She's not, she's not super clinical, but it's, um, I love her. Her name is Yadi Alba and you can, I just realized literally last week that she has an Instagram. I've never, (laughs) I've never like, don't know anything about her personal life at all, but then, uh, I wanted to shout her up. We'll put her in the show notes. Yeah. Yadi.alba. She will change your life. Um, but I, I, I needed her. I needed someone to help me with all of the, frankly, the rage that was coming up, um, in June and July, just the summer around the like racial reckoning, that's that's been going on since the murder of George Floyd and she she has been instrumental in helping me um work through kind of frankly generational traumas and um inherited traumas and and wounds and uh, so I speak to her every week and that's been a big a big step forward in my own wellness journey. Um, and then I also have, uh, I have sessions with this incredible woman. Her name is Dejanit, D-E-G-A-N-I-T. Um, and she is a clairvoyant healer. And she also does acupuncture in, in, in like non-COVID times I would go and she was, it sounds like the most woo woo goopy thing I could ever possibly say, but she's a, Not at she's all. a, She's I'm your a audience. clairvoyant acupuncturist and she is the freaking truth. And I, she will, you literally, you go, you go see her. She gives you tea, you lay down. She does acupuncture on you while she tells you about whatever you want to talk about from your past life to your guardian angels who are around you. She gives you messages from them to, you can say like the name, just the first name of anybody without giving her any context and she will read the whole dynamic and help you navigate difficult, you know, relationships or hires and fires. Like I do not hire or fire anyone or make a big decision professionally or personally without consulting Dejanet. She's just become like this channel for me that is just, it's just, she, she just helps me kind of understand what's happening, um, with more discernment and clarity and confidence. And so those two women have become like my real life guardian angels, and they've really helped me along my wellness journey and helped me kind of give myself more compassion. Um, as I try to kind of understand and unlock, you know, like ways to take care of myself better, frankly. you've been involved in Black Lives Matter for a while now. And obviously the topics being discussed around Black Lives Matter are not new for Black people. But what is new is these conversations are more widespread, which exposes you to more reactions outside of the Black community Mm -hmm. and often with people who are having these conversations for the first time. And I'm curious what the questions are that you wish people would stop asking you and what do you wish they would ask instead? Well, um, what questions do I wish they would stop asking me? 
what can I do probably and start asking themselves instead, how do I contribute to the problem? What comes to mind is silent privilege, how we benefit from systemic privilege and the need to make an effort to be actively aware because otherwise nothing changes, which is not an option. Okay. There's two things I want to say. One, that what you just said applies to all of us, including, you know, folks of folks of color, we all have some measure of privilege that is is really important that we check and mm-hmm. that we understand. And I, like I had a blind spot about some of the privilege that I possessed when I was at Glamour, feeling like an outcast, feeling, you know, I was the only black girl in the room most times. And, you know, it had this shrinking effect on me. And, you know, I was so, that was so big to me, but it, it, it wasn't brought to my attention. It, it, it wasn't clear to me that I, I, I was walking around with certain amount of privilege that um, I wasn't aware of until someone brought it to my attention. And it was this, this woman, I wrote about this in my book, but um, I'll never forget the way like years, years later, when I was writing my book about my experience at Condé Nast, at Glamour in particular, um, and I, I called like anybody who I reference in the book that I still have a relationship with and that, you know, this, I would I would call them and, and, and talk them through how I reference them in the book and just give them an opportunity to, you know, weigh in about the narrative and if they wanted to add anything or whatever. And so... Um, I had this kind of conversation with my, my coworker, Holly, um, and she gave me at that moment, like such a, she just reframed so much of what I saw as my reality, um, through her lens. And she is, you know, she's like a normal sized Jewish white girl, blonde, cool. Like I just, I never thought she had any challenges in that culture, but she said that she felt, you know, like I had like a certain kind of pretty privilege or skinny privilege or, you know, that they, that she felt I was, she was passed over, um, for opportunities to be on television, for example. And I was put forth ahead of her and I just really had to re- reconcile with like, okay, whoa, here I am feeling like the underdog and frankly, like, you know, the black sheep in a way. And little do I know, like I'm actually being put in a position that's making someone else feel that way. Someone who is white in this white world. And there are all kinds of ways that we're made to feel other, but, but, but that's almost like adjacent from the Black Lives Matter point. Um, that's almost more just, just like about self-awareness in general. Um, but in, as it relates specifically to this moment that we're in around this racial reckoning and, you know, white people kind of coming into an awareness for the first time of systemic racism and what that actually looks like and and that you know them finally understanding that it is not enough to not consider yourself a racist if you are not a- 
actively anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Now, what I have found myself frustrated with is that a lot of well-intentioned white people are jumping from that kind of aha moment or that awakening directly into um, quote-unquote anti-racist work or frankly, not work, just posting, (laughs) like learning the language of anti-racism so that they can appear to be more, frankly, woke, which is become a new social currency, but they're not taking the time to do the self-reflection of really understanding the ways in which they have contributed to systemic racism and the ways in which they are still by not owning their, their, their privilege, by not, um, uh, frankly, uh, atoning for what they have done. And I've had so many, like there's a lot of white guilt hovering in the ether right now. And, you know, what I would appreciate more than sort of a reach out, a favor, a, 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 a smile on the street, I, would, I want white people to be self-reflective about their actions, their inaction, their silence, and to atone for it, like personally atone for it. And then start the work right around, start the work within yourself and then do the work within your network, within your community, within your household before you join the chorus on the internet. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my thing. There is a difference between performative allyship and true allyship. And I think the difference is who does it benefit? If it benefits you, it is performative. And if the intention is, and if the full focus is on benefiting someone else, someone who does not look like you, someone who does not share in your lived experience, then then and only then is the beginning of the work of true allyship. I think that's where it begins. What drives you? Ooh. That's a really hard question to answer. There's like a lot of things popping into my mind. I mean, I think the desire to be better than I was yesterday is big. I think I'm only ever in competition with myself um, as it relates to anything. I I just want to be better than I was yesterday. And so, I mean, sorry, this is going to be like rambly because I don't, don't, it's going to take me a second to figure out the concise version of this answer. But like, I remember reading um, The Alchemist when I was just a college graduate, a recent college graduate. And I was trying to figure out my career path and my life. And it is, it became one of my favorite books. Um, and one of the quotes that stuck out to me and kind of has stuck with me is that, you know, something to the effect of our only obligation in, in our, in this life is, is like self, self-actualization, um, and living out our full potential is our only obligation, Some, something to that effect. And it, it really, 
it rung, it rung really true. And, and not just in the, it, it sort of sounds, it can sound a little bit selfish, but as a black woman, you are doing that work, not just for you, but for all of the women in your lineage who came before you, who didn't have that opportunity, who were not free enough, who didn't, who had not reached the level of liberation, um, mind, body, spirit, to, to be able to go after their dreams and to self-actualize, um, you know, even my mother, even my grandmother. And I feel that I feel the weight of that. I feel the responsibility of that. And I feel like generationally our responsibility is to go further than those who came before us and to give birth to, if you so choose to be a mother and to give birth, but even if, even if not, like metaphorically, those who come after you should have the opportunity to stand on your shoulders and go even farther because of you. And so I'm like, damn, I have to go as hard and as fast and as far as I possibly can, not just for me, but for those who came before me and those who are going to come after me. That's so well said. It reminds me of what you said in an interview I listened to when you were talking about your decision to put Amanda Stenberg on the cover of Teen Vogue and talk about cultural appropriation. And you were telling this to your mom and she goes, Elaine, when I was your age, we didn't have time to worry about cultural appropriation. Mm. We were worried about keeping our jobs. Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Totally. There's nothing like that that will put you in your place. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, totally. and like rec- help you recognize even your like your intellectual privilege of being able, like yeah. the, the types of cultural wars we're fighting right now are some of them are largely intellectual, you know, and, and, um, it's important to remember, like just to stay rooted in, in, in actual struggle and survive the struggle of, you know, just surviving. (laughs) Um, because for so many of us, that's where we still are. And, um, but but yeah, I know my mom my mom keeps me very grounded in what in in what really matters and in um kind of like what what like as you go far and as you go fast and you know but you just remember like where you come from and remember who you're doing this for and stay connected to that, you know, never lose sight of that in all of your you know lofty intellectual lizing an intellectualization of whatever is going on in the world. It's like at the end of the day, like remember who your people are and remember what their actual struggle looks like day to day. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, simultaneously your ability to intellectualize your, whatever your experiences is so important because when you can speak powerfully, and I think that you've definitely seen this yourself, you, that is when you really have the ability to control a room, have people listen to you and really Mm. change the conversations, which will inevitably incite action. And I think Mm. you've seen this with your own work, you know, Mm. very palpably in there. So, um, thank you. Thank you for your time. That was Elaine Welteroth. You can follow her at Elaine Welteroth on all social media platforms. And you can get in touch with me anytime on Instagram and Twitter 
at Gillian Sagansky. That is my birth name, but everyone used to pronounce it Jillian Sagansky. So I went with Gigi. If you liked this conversation, hit that subscribe button and I'll be back with you in two weeks. Until next time.